Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we're continuing in a sermon series that we've been in uh, for the past several weeks where we've been looking at uh, the mission and values of our church, right? We've said throughout there's certain things that knit all churches together, things that are common to what it means to be the church. But what we've been trying to look at is, in addition to those things, what are the particular things that we feel called to as Christ Church in town? What makes us us uh, as a church? And so uh, we've looked at our mission We've, looked at, uh, we've begun looking at our values. Last week, we looked uh, at our first core value, which is grace. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And this morning, uh, we are going to look at our value of reconciliation. Here's the way that we put this value on our website. Reconciliation, the church, is meant to be an uncommon family. In a world divided along the lines of race, culture, class, and political party, We are called to lay down our lives in seeking the beloved community brought together by Christ. This is a daunting, um, perhaps that's an understatement, element of our mission. Uh, This is perhaps culturally where we feel the most pressure uh, in our particular uh, values and mission. And so uh, we, uh, and by we, I largely mean I, thought it would be wise uh, to slow down uh, at this particular value and actually spend a few weeks uh, talking about the church as an uncommon family, uh, recognizing that it is a hard-fought value. It's a value that we have to work at. And so this morning, we are going to look at this uncommon unity that we are called to as a church. Uh, and so we'll be looking uh, this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Again, our scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us accordance to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. So as I mentioned, we are gonna, we're going to spend a few weeks talking about this idea of the church as an uncommon family, talking today about uncommon unity. 
And uh, as I said, I think that this is probably the most contested element of our mission of just living in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, right? We're aware of the fact uh, that on a broad level, it feels like our culture is coming apart, uh, right? That uh, long-held things that, that we agreed with and found commonality over now become occasions for disagreement. We're more polarized and more passionate uh, than ever about what divides us. And the church, uh, the church of Jesus Christ is not exempt from that, right? The, there's been uh, a good number of articles written recently on the fact that the church itself uh, is fragmenting. Right, once what once was kind of a unified uh, theological movement uh, under the banner of evangelicalism now seems to be falling apart. Right now, you have ex-evangelicals and post-evangelicals and fundamentalists. You've got a, a a whole different group of different people reading different things and following different paths. And so, uh, the church is fragmenting. Not talking necessarily or particularly about our church, but it'd be naive to think that we're immune from this. Right? It'd be, be naive to think that the forces that are pulling apart the church aren't acting on our church, right? that we don't need to learn and to focus on how we come together in a time of fragmentation so that we don't splitter, splinter along cultural and social and political lines. You know, there's a, there's a scene, I love sports movies. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, genres of movies. I, there's almost not a bad sports movie uh, in my mind. And there's a moment in almost every sports movie, uh, maybe not the individual, you know, not like Rocky and the Karate Kid where it's just one person, but all, this, all the team sports movies, there's always a scene where the coach pulls everybody into the locker room and he gives a rousing speech, right? And usually, though the speeches change, like usually there's one main point. Right, whether it's Denzel Washington in Remember the Titans taking the guys out to Gettysburg for camp and saying, we have to learn to come together as a team or we too will be destroyed. Or there's a movie I watched with my kids not long ago, Miracle, the story of the U.S. hockey team, where Herb Brooks takes them and they're on the ice and he says, you got to learn that the name on the front of your jersey matters a whole lot more than the name on the back of your jersey, the USA on the front. Or Al Pacino in any given Sunday when he says, we either heal as a team or we die as individuals. There's a moment uh, in all these movies that has basically the same point, right? Is that if we're going to hold together as a team, if we're going to hold together as a unity, at some point we have to start caring less about ourselves and our own personal uh, glory, perspective, winning, being right, and start to care more about the team. And that is something like uh, what Paul is doing in Ephesians. And it's something like what I'm hoping to do this morning. Paul in Ephesians is dealing with a church that's coming apart. Uh, the division uh, that he was wrestling with in the Ephesian church was the division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. The uh, Jewish Christians were those who'd recognized in Christ their long-awaited Messiah. The Gentiles were everyone else, right? The Greeks and Romans, the, uh, uh, the, the residents of Asia Minor, those who came to the church, who came to faith from outside 
of the Jewish heritage, from outside of the inheritance of the Old Testament and the Torah and the prophets. And these folks are now coming together to try to live in one church. The division between them would have been ethnic. It would have been linguistic. It would have been uh, historical. Right, The Gentiles, the Greek speakers, uh, were, at least at some part, uh, the same group of people that the Jewish Christians identified with those people who took them captive, with those people who desecrated the temple when they took over Jerusalem. So there was historical animosity, cultural animosity. And now Paul says, now you guys are stuck together in one church. Paul tells them in Ephesians chapter 2, That God in Christ has made one new man out of the two, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that used to keep you divided. In essence, you know, look, Herb Brooks to the U.S. hockey team appealed to their sense of patriotism, right? And remember the Titans, they appealed to their sense of unity as a team. Paul does something even more powerful and different. He appeals to what Jesus has already done. He appeals to a theological reality. He says, look, Jesus has made you one. He has torn down the wall that might separate you. And so now live as who you are. Live in the light of what Christ has already achieved and won for you. Don't splinter what Christ has joined together. Right? What are the words that I say at the end of every single wedding? What God has joined together, let no man tear apart. And that's the unity of a husband and wife, but it's the unity of the church. It's the unity of the church across cultural and political and racial, every single kind of line, joined together in an uncommon unity. Paul tells this church, live like who you already are in Christ. And so we want to look at this gospel gift of Christian unity. The gospel gift of Christian unity. Paul says uh, here, we're going to really draw on on this poetic uh, words of Paul where he says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. You know, the unity of the church uh, is an article of faith for Christians. Right? It's not like... Sometimes we think of unity as something less than doctrinal, right? That, you know, unity is like, you know, it's what we're going to do at the picnic. It's sitting around, it's singing kumbaya, it's playing bingo, it's sharing food. It's kind of this, it's the optional feel-good part of Christianity. But what really matters are the doctrines, right? The incarnation, justification by faith, those kind of things. And those things matter a ton. But the unity of the church is a Christian doctrine. Right When we get together to confess the Nicene Creed, we say we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In the same breath that we confess the incarnation, the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, we confess the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It's a, it's a statement of faith that we believe that in Christ he's not only justified us, he's not only sanctified us, he's not only brought us to the Father, but he's also made a family out of this group of strangers and brought us in to a unity that cannot be broken. 
and cannot be shaken. It's a unity that was on the lips of Jesus uh, right before he headed to the cross. John 17, his high priestly prayer. Father, make them one as you and I are one. And so we're going to look at this gift of unity. What Paul calls here, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, it's a political unity. One faith, it's a confessional unity. One baptism, it's a sacramental unity. First, one Lord as a political unity. To say that we are a people of one Lord means that we are a politically unified body. You might be sitting there and go, that is news to me, Dave. (laughs) It it is a news to me that any group of two or three people could be politically unified, let alone a group of 200 people. And yet to say that we are a people of one Lord is to say we are a people that has no king but Jesus. It's to say uh, that we are a, a, a body of people that bows to no other Lord. Lordship in the ancient world was a title that was applied to earthly rulers. It would have been a commonplace uh, phrase that just rolled off of the ancient tongue to say that Caesar is Lord. And so when Paul says we, are, we have one Lord, he's saying in essentially a loaded phrase, we have one Lord and Caesar ain't him. Right? We have one Lord that we bow to and it's Jesus. And so we are a politically unified body, and it has nothing to do, actually, with how anybody pulled a lever on December 2nd or voted absentee however long before that. I will. So we are a people of one Lord. The church is fundamentally political, but not partisan. Right, it is a political movement. It's a political movement that, that, has its, uh, that puts down roots in every nation of the earth. Right, that's the, the picture of the New Testament is that the church exists as a counterpolis, right, a, a counter-nation, as an outpost of another nation in every nation. Right, uh, Peter tells us, as we looked at last summer, that we live our lives as exiles, as strangers and aliens, so that whether or not you make your life in China or America or Afghanistan or Iran or Brazil, that you have more in common politically with the little group of Christians living and worshiping in China than you might have with your neighbors. Because you claim one Lord, one common king. That's what unifies the church of the New Testament, whether they were in Ephesus or Jerusalem and Rome, wherever they were, they were a people of one Lord, Jesus Christ, living as aliens and strangers, citizens of a colony of heaven, breaking out onto earth. So when someone comes and asks you what your political affiliation is, you can say to them, oh, you know what? I am actually a member of a very subversive political group. Right? Here's what we're doing. We exist in every nation under earth, but we're not a part of any nation of the earth. We actually, uh, we're on every nation, but we bow to no other king. We're on every nation, but we're actually unified together across national lines. And we have a vision for the transformation of the entire world. We have a vision for the redemption of all things. 
And so we love one another. We lay down our lives for one another. We overlook difference. We love the poor. We work towards reconciliation. All is a sign to the kingdoms of this world that there is another king and there's another kingdom breaking into this world. So we have a political unity. Now, obviously, this, uh, as we joked a little bit about earlier, this uh, is not readily available to the outside eye, and it's not especially available or you know, obvious over the past year or so. But if the church's main political fact is the fact that we bow to Jesus, not to Caesar, if our main political fact isn't an election but an ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, then that means that even when we differ, the way that we live together, the way that we love one another, actually is the point. Right? The point ceases to be, yes, we all, you know, every two to four years, we all go and vote. Right? We all follow uh, what we hope is sanctified wisdom. We all try to apply the teachings of Jesus. We all uh, try to, to, to live by the light that he's opened for us. But it means at the end of the day, the most important thing isn't how any individual member votes, but actually how we love one another in the midst of it, how we bear with one another through the difference of it, how we share with one another, how we rub off on one another, because that's the part that actually ends up being a, a, a countercultural witness to the world. It's not just the end result, but it's how we get there. It's the way that we walk together through the divisions of our age. Okay, so it's a political unity, one Lord. Secondly, it's a confessional unity, one faith. This means that we are unified in a common faith, that we're unified in a common message, the message of the gospel. It means that we, whatever, whatever issues we might disagree on, socially, culturally, politically, any of that stuff, that what we agree on is so much deeper and more important and more profound that we come together in a common confession in our membership class we use uh, this framework to talk about theology usually it's attributed uh, to saint augustine in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things charity in essentials, unity, right? On the, on the big rock issues of the Christian faith, absolute unity. On the non-essentials, on the things over which we disagree, liberty, right? Freedom. But in all things, whether things we agree on or disagree, on charity, love, towards one another. In essentials, unity, that, that is the message of the gospel, right? Every single one of us, when we join, if you're a member of this church, uh, you stood in front of your brothers and sisters and confessed, right? You made the good confession of faith. You confessed, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I receive and rest on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I'll endeavor to live my life in a way that becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. I promise to pursue the peace and purity of the church and to submit to its leadership. Right, But the first parts of that, the repentance, faith in Christ, endeavoring to live as a disciple, those are the essentials of the Christian faith. Right, That's the essentials of what it means, whether or not you're Presbyterian or Lutheran or non-denominational or Episcopalian or anything under the sun. 
right? The, the essential unity of the Christian faith is in that confession. I'm a sinner saved by Christ in seeking to live my entire life as his follower. That is our essential unity. Now, we flesh that out more, right? If you're going to be uh, our, our officers, right, our deacons and uh, our elders and, and uh, our commissioned deaconesses, they all have studied the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism, so they've gone into a little bit more detail on those essentials. But it's the essential commitments of our faith that hold us together, right? That is the confession that binds us together as a church. And in non-essentials, Liberty, right? There are so many things, right? We could talk about all sorts of things that we agree on in those things that matter most, but there are all sorts of things that Christians disagree on, right? There's, there's all sorts of things that people in this room disagree on. Among the many social currents and cultural trends and issues of our time, we're all going to, we come to places where we parse those things out differently, and we need to be able to learn to live and walk with one another in a posture of humility and liberty. You know, so much uh, of life comes down to distinguishing between the essentials and the non-essentials. Uh, a ton of, uh, of life comes down to knowing how we rank our priorities, right? What is most important and what's important but less important and then what's ultimately not all that important. Right? How do we order our lives and how do we do that uh, in a church community to know what's worth fighting over and over what kind of things we agree to disagree? I had a seminary professor. Uh, some, of you, some of you guys will know him. You know Richard Pratt and you know Richard Pratt. You work for Richard Pratt. Um, anyway, uh, Dr. Pratt was one of my uh, theology teachers and he had a wonderful little tool uh, that he introduced me to that actually has saved me more headaches than I know what to do with. He called it the cone of certainty. Remember the cone? Okay. So if you have a bulletin in front of you, you can draw a cone. You can try. If you're incapable of drawing a cone, you can imagine a cone. Um, but my second grader is currently working on drawing shapes, so I think you guys can, can likely pull off the cone. And he says that a human being's commitments ought to fit within a cone. At the top of the cone come your highest priorities. These are the things, he says, that you should be willing to be martyred over. These are the things that matter enough that you would die for them. And he says a sane and well-adjusted person does not have that many things that they are willing to die over. I remember him looking at a first-year group of seminary students and go, would you die for infant baptism? And a group of, you know, Seminary students who assume that zeal is the main qualifier for ministry say, yeah, you know, I'd take a bullet for that. And he goes, what's wrong with you people? I think I'm right on that, but I wouldn't die for it. What do you, I mean, come on. The things that belong in the top of your, of your cone, the virgin birth, the physical resurrection, the lordship of Jesus, right? These are the things that whether, you ever asked to, whether you're ever asked to be martyred for them or not, these are the things that by virtue of your faith, you've said, I'm betting my life on. I'm betting my future. I'm betting my eternity on the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what does Paul say? If he's not resurrected, then, then our faith is in vain. 
Right? So, so some things belong in the top of your cone. But as the cone gets wider, as it goes, as more things come into it, we have to hold our beliefs with a little more humility. Right? We all have things in our lives that we need to learn how to say, you know what, I think I'm right about this, but it's complicated and I could be wrong. There are, I don't know how many things over the last year that have come into our collective life that are just straight up complicated. Right? You should have an opinion. Right? You're living through a life that's asking you for, to, to develop Christian wisdom on everything from how you parse out the ongoing effects of racism in our culture, how you parse out political loyalties and disloyalties, how you process COVID and all of the different responses. It's good for you to think about these things and for you to figure out your way and your family's way through them. But on all of these things, none of us should be so certain that we can't say, I think I'm right, but it's complicated, so I could be wrong. And to learn then to live with one another, who in the midst of all of the complications and confusions of life, come to different conclusions within the lower part of the cone. And then there's all sorts of stuff in between, right? Of the stuff that I'm, that I'm certain of, like I'm, I'm more certain of infant baptism than I am of how a pandemic works, Right? I have a graduate degree in one of them, and one of them I'm just figuring out with the rest of you. Right? I have things I'm more certain of, less certain of. Sometimes I'll grow in confidence and a belief, and it moves up over time. But we have to be able to parse these things out in community. It's unhealthy to have either too much at the top of your cone or at the bottom of your cone. Right? Fundamentalism uh, ended up becoming something that crammed everything into the top of the cone. Right, it started out in the 1920s as a belief about five fundamentals, right? The miracles, the virgin birth, the authority of the word, necessity of conversion. But over time, when you, we get what you now think of when you think of a fundamentalist. It's someone for whom everything is something worth fighting over. Right? Not just the resurrection, but what Bible translation you use. Right? Not just uh, baptism, but how you baptize. How much water do you use? Right? So when everything gets pumped into the top of the cone, everything becomes a fight. That's fundamentalism. Theological liberalism happens when everything gets pushed out of the top of the cone. When you say, you know what, ultimately there's nothing that matters all that much. Virgin birth, not virgin birth, physical resurrection, not physical resurrection. We can just agree to disagree on all this stuff. But a healthy, generous, orthodox faith says, no, no, the things that matter most are worth fighting and dying for. Right? The things that matter most are worth staking your life upon. But the other stuff is worth loving one another through and negotiating and figuring out how to love one another in the midst of it. So it's a confessional unity. And then it's a sacramental unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. I don't think we think about our baptism nearly enough. There's this great line in our confession uh, that says that every time we witness a baptism, right? We're, we are in a church that baptized not only believers, but also their children. And so many of us were baptized as, as, as children. So many, I don't remember my baptism. But our confession says that every time you witness a baptism, 
We're to remember our baptism and to seek to improve upon it. What this basically means is that we live our lives out of our baptism. We live our lives out of a new identity forged in the waters of baptism. That we become who we are by being marked out as belonging to Christ through our baptism. That we have a new identity marked by water and that water is thicker than blood. That the waters of baptism define us more than any other marker in our lives. More than race, more than culture, more than politics, more than ethnicity, more than language, more than nationality. That we are who we are as baptized men and women and children. That the waters of baptism, as we said in our confession, make us new creations. I love this prayer from Martin Luther. This is, uh, it, it's become known to us as the flood prayer, and I think you'll see why. But this is Martin Lu- one of Martin Luther's baptismal prayers that he would pray. Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemned the unbelieving world through the flood. Yet according to your great mercy, you preserved believing Noah and his family, eight souls in all. You drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea. Yet you led your people Israel through the water on dry ground, prefiguring this washing of your holy baptism. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. We pray that you would behold this child according to your boundless mercy and bless her with true faith by the Holy Spirit that through this saving flood of baptism, all sin in her which has been inherited from Adam, in which he himself has committed since, would be drowned and die. Grant that she be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church, being separated from the multitude and serving your name at all times with a fervent spirit and a joyful hope, so that with all believers in your promise, she would be declared worthy of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through the saving flood of baptism, he marks us out as belonging to him like Noah in the ark through the flood, like Israel through the Red Sea, that we are members of one another through the waters of baptism. That as a baptized person, You are joined together, and that becomes the hub of our identity in Christ. That before you are anything else, you are in Christ. You belong to Him, and He belongs to you. And that's what makes you who you are. Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, these famous words, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no more distinctions in human beings, right? It doesn't mean, you know, he's not arguing for androgyny, right? Hey, there's no difference between men and women anymore, right? We know that there, was still, there were still those who lived as, as slaves and those who lived as masters. He teaches towards that in different points of his, of his letters. Right? We know that there were still, in Ephesus, there were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So what he, he's not saying that those things don't matter but what he's, or, or they, they're not real. 
But what he's saying is before you're a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, you're a Christian. You're baptized into Christ, and it means that no matter what, what may come between you, no matter what differences of opinion, no matter what, what past sins and wrongs, no matter what else exists, you have the grounds for reconciliation because of Jesus Christ. That you have more in common than you have against one another. Because of Jesus, you have the capacity to repent and confess to one another. Because of Jesus, you can learn from one another. Because of Jesus, you can submit to one another in love, in unity. We belong to one another. And then finally, so we've talked about this gospel gift of unity. It's a political unity, it's a confessional unity, and a sacramental unity. I want to just, in closing, note that even though this is a gospel gift, even though it's something that's given to us in Christ, it doesn't just happen. Right? If it did, uh, the New Testament would actually be a whole lot shorter because it seems like half of what Paul's doing everywhere in the New Testament is writing to people to help them learn to live out what's already true of them in Christ, to live out their unity. The way Paul puts it here, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That it takes a walk, that it is, that it is a process, that it takes some work to live out who we are. With all humility, right? Humility is the posture of Christian fellowship. The posture that says, I don't, always, I don't have to get my way. I don't have to assume that I'm always in the right. Right? I can take this posture of humility. I think this is crucial. I'll speak, you know, just momentarily. I think for those of us who are in leadership in any way in the church, it's important for us to learn to embody humility within the church. For us to learn not only to confess our sins, but to confess our, our lack of complete knowledge, our lack of, of absolute certainty. To recognize that we lead as sinners. Though we want to be wise, we're often fools. That actually, in, in, in Christ, in the church, the qualification for leadership actually is humility. Right? That the, those least suited for leadership in the Christian church are those who are most certain that they deserve it. Those who are most certain that they're right and gifted and strong. It's actually the posture of weakness and confession that qualifies anyone for leadership in Christ's church. Gentleness, and all humility and gentleness, talk about a virtue that's in short supply. Right, to be willing to be gentle with one another, to not be harsh or demeaning, to not be constantly argumentative, but to be gentle towards one another. This means that you're going to have, I mean, there's, I got to wrap up. There's a whole other sermon that could be preached on social media use alone under the, under the banner of gentleness. But remember, uh, if you're on social media, they actually are other human beings on the other side of the keyboard with hearts and souls and feelings and histories. And you can't, you can't relate to one another. You ought to relate to one another on social media as though they were, you're dealing with your brothers and sisters, real human beings. And then when you come together in person, you need to learn, we, I need to learn, we need to learn a tone of gentleness, kindness. One of these other virtues that Paul lists is patience, willing to persevere in love over time, to not leave one another in hard times, to bear with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the bonds of peace. Friends, in the church, how we treat one another is almost the whole thing, right? The the results you come to matter, but the way you get there really matters. The way you love one another and treat one another matters a whole lot to Jesus. And what Paul's writing here is that every single one of us is a steward of the church's unity, right? When he says that we should be eager to maintain the bonds of peace, it means that it's everybody's job. It's every, every single one of us is accountable for how we maintain peace with one another, with how we treat one another, with how we love one another. It's not, uh, it's certainly my job, but it's not just my job. It's certainly the session's job, but it's not just the session's job. It's all of our jobs to maintain the bonds of peace. Guys, there's a reason that almost every pastor I know has thought of quitting this year. Some of them have. I've got good friends uh, that were pastors at the beginning of 2020 uh, and are not right now. And part of it, when I talk to my friends, uh, when, I, when I listen to what's going on, is that sometimes right now being a pastor feels like trying to hold something together that wants to come apart. It feels like trying to hold sand between your fingers that wants to slip through. It's exhausting. I've felt what it feels like when every force in our culture wants to pull us apart. To feel sometimes like it's all up to you to try to hold it together. And of course, there's just boatloads of sin in that, right? It's not up to me, right? Jesus holds his church together. Jesus holds us to himself. And we, right, unity is a team sport. We keep short accounts with one another. We confess when we wrong one another. We seek to understand one another. The gift of the Holy Spirit that binds the church together in unity doesn't just live in the pastor, doesn't live in the elders. It does, but not just the elders. Doesn't live just in the staff. It lives in each one of us. And each of us is called to live and walk with one another with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the bonds of peace. Because ultimately, the posture that's being described there is the posture of Jesus. The one who is alone, truly humble and gentle and patient and loving. And when we do that with one another, when we learn to do this together, we all become more like Christ, more loving, more humble, more gentle. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the unity of the church is a unity that you paid for on Calvary. The reconciliation that you purchased with your blood between us and God the Father, you also purchased Uh, between us as brothers and sisters, that we would no longer live as strangers to one another, divided by race and class and culture and politics and ideology, but brought together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive us in this way, in this area of our lives. Lord, this world has taught us to think and to speak contemptuously of one another.
to judge one another, to believe we understand everything about somebody um, by virtue of uh, their political position or something like that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to move beyond uh, judgmentalism, to move beyond contempt, to move beyond easy answers, to press more deeply uh, into unity and communion, the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the fellowship of the church. Lord Jesus, that you would help us uh, to long to learn to listen before we speak, to learn to understand more than we long to be understood, to long to learn from one another before we long to teach one another. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use uh, the trials and tribulations of these years, of of this year, to be um, a crucible that forges a deeper unity in us, that teaches us greater humility and gentleness with one another, that that helps us uh, to learn to moderate our language, that helps us to learn to love one another across all divides. Lord Jesus, forgive us our sins, they're many. Lead us into a deeper communion with you and with one another. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org. 